Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Recording from my living room in beautiful Marietta, Georgia, you are listening to the Think Inclusive Podcast, Episode 5. I am your host, Tim Viegas. Today I will be speaking with Paula Kluth, an internationally renowned author and speaker about inclusive education. Her books are some of my favorite resources, and I'm constantly recommending her work to my colleagues. A little confession about this recording. It was recorded in May and I'm finally getting around to editing now that it's August. Uh, It has been a very busy summer with the vacations, visiting with family, and me being home with the kids. Uh, My littlest one, uh, one of three, uh, just turned one, and my wife and I are coming up uh, on our 10th wedding anniversary. So things have been uh, pretty busy, and they've moved pretty fast this summer. But I'm really excited about bringing this conversation to you. Paul and I discuss whether reverse inclusion can be a stepping stone to authentic inclusion. We also discuss ways educators can promote inclusion at their local schools, as well as if technology in the classroom is all that it's cracked up to be. So, without further ado, let's get to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Joining us today on the Think Inclusive podcast is Dr. Paula Kluth, an internationally renowned consultant, author, advocate, and independent scholar who works with teachers and families to provide inclusive opportunities for students with disabilities and to create more responsive and engaging schooling experiences for all learners. Paula is a former special educator who has served as a classroom teacher and inclusion facilitator. She is the author or co-author of many books, including Don't We Already Do Inclusion? A Hundred Ways to Improve Inclusive Schools, and You're Going to Love This Kid, Teaching Students with Autism in Inclusive Classrooms. 
Paul, I am honored that you took some time out of your day to speak with us. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tim. I'm really thrilled to be here. I've listened to other podcasts um, that you have um, been putting out there for the last couple of months. So thank you for doing that work, and I'm really excited to be included. Well, thank you. I think that you and my mom are about the only ones who are <laughs> listening. I, I know that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, great, great. Uh, well, let's get right into it. Um, the reason I asked um, you to be on the program, uh, on the podcast, is to talk about your book. Uh, of course, we have a lot of other things that you know we can talk about. Uh, but first, I'd like to um, I'd like to say I love the title of the book. Uh, Don't we already do inclusion? Um, do you find that uh, in your trainings or in conversations that you're answering this question a lot? Um, and what what would be like the impetus for you writing this book in the first place? Well, you know, first of all, I do love kind of like clever titles, and I think they're memorable. But a lot of them do come out of conversations that I've been having. And this, you know, came up a lot in doing a lot of work with teachers and administrators, where uh, especially when I was having the privilege of working with schools that were sophisticated, that had been doing the work for quite some time. And so I had been spending a lot of time, a lot of my career helping folks move out of, you know, settings that were um, segregated or self-contained and, and moving into inclusive environments. But I began to realize that, you know, that sometimes that I wasn't having a discussion with folks who were already sort of seen as having inclusive models. And I thought, you know, it's time to maybe address some of the work that is happening or not happening in schools that already have an identity of being inclusive, um, but, but, you know, may not realize um, or may not have the tools or may not have the awareness that, you know, that really in the work of inclusive education, like in the work of education in general, like in the work of parenting or, you know, that the work is never really done. Mm. And, um, you know, so, so, you know, some of the things that came up um, in the writing, you know, the sort of impetus for writing were, you know, being in schools where, you know, that they were, they were, you know, the school was known for inclusion, sometimes for a decade or two. And and had that reputation. Yet there were kids with certain labels who had never been brought back from private placements and who were never thought of as candidates for inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that kind of thing. Or or I would be in a school where they would have a lot of great energy around certain elements of inclusivity, so that they were maybe great um, supports, good co-teaching models, and things like that. But some students sort of received a lot of education in a room called the inclusion room. Mm-hmm. So I used to joke and say, if you have a room called the inclusion room, you're probably not an inclusive school. <laughs> um, but, you know, just things that are, you know, just for all of us, you know, things that all of us said, no matter what part in the journey we're at, um, could probably sit back and, and be a little reflective. And that's really what the book is about. Um, that It's good. I, I mean, uh, the the examples you give, I, I think, are very concrete, and I love your style of writing. It's very conversational, so um, it's very it, it's very easy to read, and um, it's a, a great conversation starter. Um, I would love I would love to have this as a resource for our school district, um, although I don't think that's going to, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Don't want to be too cynical now, <laughs> but. Uh, um, what dare I, to dream, though. Yeah, that's what d- I say, exactly. Dare to dream. <laughs> um, what 
uh, I, what I think is interesting about what you said uh, about about uh, systems, schools, districts that have had a history of being quote unquote inclusive um, is that those um, those systems kind of have their own idea of what inclusion is, you know, and so they play right. it out. They play it out however however that culture, um, I guess, deems fit. Uh, I remember when I was doing my teacher training and we went to a school. Uh, this was uh, when I was living in California in, in uh, Orange County. Um, and we went to a school that was that was a model for inclusion, uh, yet they did not have any students uh, with significant disabilities. And at the, at the time, I, I didn't even think that was weird because I never, uh, I had never worked with any, any um, students with uh, significant disabilities. So it was just like, oh, okay, well, you know, they go somewhere else. Um, But uh, it is interesting that, that, certain schools, um, I, I guess, define inclusion a particular way. Um, do you have a, this isn't, you know, this isn't necessarily something that I, I was going to talk about, but, uh, okay. do you have a definition of inclusion? Well, I think about inclusion, you know, I, and this is not, I, I wouldn't say this is my definition alone, but I think a way that a lot of people think about inclusion, um, in this, that have been involved in this movement, think about it with what I would call a, the big I. Mm-hmm. So instead of thinking about inclusion, like inclusion is, in, you know, bringing kids with disabilities out of segregated environments into welcoming, um, common environments, inclusive environments. That's sort of the, our, you know, original sort of way of thinking about this. But I think a lot of people, it's just not mine, but this big I is about inclusion. In other words, inclusion around race and ethnicity and sexual orientation and disability and ability and gender and really thinking about inclusion is really about making schools uh you know uh, appropriately challenging safe mm-hmm. welcoming um you know for every student and part of that you know part of that definition is that students are educated together they're educated side by side with their neighbors and their um, you know, siblings and classmates in this in in these uh, in these common environments, and that we don't have classrooms only for certain kinds of learners. That doesn't mean that we can't have small group instruction. It doesn't mean that we can't have um, you know students working independently on projects. It doesn't mean that we can't have kids grouped in really interesting ways, including across grade levels and things like that. Mm-hmm. Kids can still get all kinds of personalized instruction, but that we don't want to see spaces that are designated just for certain learners um, that other kids can't access. You know, I think it's perfectly fine for kids with certain disabilities to have a respite in a quieter area. I just think everybody should be able to have that. Right. I think it's, you know, I think some kids need a lot of small group instruction. I just think a lot of kids should get access to small group instruction. So, so those are some of the ways that we think about, you know, inclusion, which is just that, you know, all kids get access to sort of all these different ways of being in schools and that we don't leave inclusion at just these issues of, of ability and disability. Like right. we're also thinking really broadly. Right. Um, I know that there's, um, here in Georgia, um, the exceptional children's week is, is kind of, a uh, something that is, um, that comes out 
in the in the calendars in the PTA calendars. And something right. that I did this year was I I moved it from that to an inclusive schools week. But it was yeah, very well, but it was very you know, because they we have the national inclusive schools week in December. Right. But it was it's very difficult to change the mindset to it 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 not just being about disability. Um, right. Because we ended up, you know, I mean, uh, we ended up doing a lot of stuff that was disability related. Um, but sure. I would like, you know, for us to keep on moving to to really look at that. That the you're right. The big eye inclusion doesn't just mean you know learning differences. It also means uh, cultural differences and uh, and and so on. So um, uh, what. What I thought was interesting about what you said was um, that uh, having p- places in the school where e- it is not just for a particular student, that that uh, the groupings of students can be a lot more fluid and creative. Um, do you think that because of the way that public e- education is, especially in the United States, do you feel that is... Uh, difficult because of the constraints of the common core and I mean I mean I could I could list a million things I mean Um, it's interesting that you say common core because in a way you know when I saw common core standards and really took a look at them I thought well this actually could be helpful I mean one is sort of the the under underlying I think elements of common core is we really want to bring appropriate levels of challenge to all kids you mm -hmm. know so so I love that, that disability wasn't left out of the discussion. That's really helpful. So just like the other versions of standards, I mean, they don't tell us how to teach, but they do tell us, you know, where we want kids to be. And so that leaves a lot of flexibility and creativity. And I think, you know, if we don't work together and think about all these different permutations and these ways to be ways to be in schools, that makes those standards harder to achieve. And so, um, yeah, I do think there are a lot of the constraints are some are real and some are imagined. Mm. You know, some are like actually like, you know, my principal would never let me do that. And some constraints are just like, well, have we ever tried? I mean, have we ever asked? Have we ever thought of designing this in a different way? So some are just imagined. So, for example, um, you know, a lot of um, teachers, you know, I talk a lot about in the book, I talk about radical role sharing so that, you know, paraprofessionals, teachers, special educators, therapists, you know, just by behaving a little bit differently can create some of these, um, you know, these different ways of being, whether it's through lesson formats or teaching strategies, just by having different conversations tomorrow. You know, so Mm. if I said, well, I really think that, you know, small group instruction is really for everybody. Well, when you come into the, you know, tomorrow for speech therapy, why don't you come into the classroom and why don't we work in a centers or stations model instead of a more traditional whole class model? I mean, almost instantly you would, (laughs) you would be giving kids access to um, adults they couldn't typically access. Kids with disabilities would still get what they needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you'd have students without disabilities getting some instruction that would be novel, that would be different. So I think sometimes just by thinking different, an individual thinking differently can create some of those things. Other things are harder to do, you know, like actually the creation of spaces or, mm. you know, figuring out, you know, I've been in schools where it's like paraprofessionals can never, ever 
work with students with disability, without disabilities. And I say, well, you know, how sure are you about that? And what is the actual guideline around that? Let's actually look at what the policies are. So sometimes people have been, you know, it's like folklore in a school, mm-hmm. you know, about how things actually behave. So I think sometimes it takes um, an inventive teacher to say, you know, I wonder if, if I came to my leadership or to my colleagues with some ideas, it could be a single idea about having, you know, making certain spaces accessible to all. Right. So I'll just give one more example of that. In one of the schools I worked in, there was like in a traditional special ed classroom, and that was no longer going to be used in a tradi- in, as a traditional special ed classroom. So they just called it something different. So we called it like the learning lab. I can't remember, but something like that. Mm-hmm. And that space was then available. It was two-sided. One had a lot of sensory stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And so anybody could go in there and sort of take a break or read or study or something like that. And then the other side had tables so kids could, like project-based instruction could take place in there. Mm. And so lot, there were certain kids and groups of kids that accessed it more, but it was open to anybody. So that was just a simple, I mean, really a paint job and putting a different name on the door. <laughs> yeah. Some of those, I mean, so, you know, some of those things are possible almost Im- immediately. Right, right. Um, I know a lot of, uh, I've had many conversations with um, special educators in in my county, in the, in the, the school, district, school district I'm in, but also in other counties, um, and a lot of believe in the philosophy of inclusion or, you know, or at least on, on kind of our, our side of the fence, but have a hard time seeing how it plays out practically, especially for self-contained classrooms. Um, it, it, and me being a self-contained teacher, uh, you know, I've tried to, (laughs) I've tried to kind of break that mold. Um, but uh, I mean, I'm having a hard time too, with you know, uh, teachers and paraprofessionals being cut because of uh, budget, uh, you know, budget reductions, um, and then also just running into that philosophical difference um, that no one's gonna, no one's gonna want to really work at it harder than than I am or right. whoever is whoever really believes in it. So, what would be your suggestion? You know to me or to other educators who are in self-contained classrooms and want to pursue um, uh, inclusion for their kiddos? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's almost the same situation in a very strange parallel uh, that parents, um, you know, find themselves in. They have great desire and not enough power to make an immediate switch, right? The parents have a ton of desire and knowledge, but they they don't have the power to go in and make something miraculously happen. Mm-hmm. And the same is true of a lot of teachers. I mean, Tim, I'm sure you know teachers like this. I know teachers who have been written up pursuing these agendas. I know teachers who have been fired pursuing these agendas. I know teachers who have had, um, you know, all kinds of reprimands and marks in the records. Um, you name it. Mm-hmm. And so it's not easy at all, um, in, 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 as, as families can tell you, in their kind of struggle. So one of the things I always tell families is, you remember that song, there's at least 50 ways to leave your lover, you know? Right. <laughs> there's, there's like at least, you know, 50, if not 500 ways to get inclusion if you're a parent. Not all of them, and not most of them are easy, but I think that there's a different, almost a different path taken by almost every parent that you meet who got there, who wanted it and got there. Hmm. Some of them are very quiet and they just chip away. Some of them are fierce. 
Some of them get really mad. Some of them sue. Some of them move. Some of them open up, you know, some of them run for PTO and become the school board president. Some of them, I know one mom who opened up her own school, um, you know, kind of like a hybrid charter kind of school. I mean, that's, that's unique. Being on a school board is unique. So I'm always fascinated by that. And I think the same is true for teachers. I doubt that there's one way for any teacher to make this happen, but there are lots of things that I know that teachers have done to be, you know, effective. It's not getting all the way there, but chipping away. And so I've known teachers who have um, pursued this through a single co-teaching relationship, you know, found a great partner and said, um, I, we think we could, you know, a preschool teacher and a kindergarten teacher, we think we could get this going and created a formal proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of administrators, if you can think of a way to do it, this is not easy. This is hard. Mm-hmm. But you had a proposal. My administrator used to say, don't come to me with problems unless you have three solutions. Mm. You know, so some folks are open to that. Some folks action research and saying, look, look, here's what I found. My kids that were out for this language arts period, their marks look different than the kids who were back here. I feel like I can meet their needs better over here. Some people very subversively educate parents about inclusion. That's not for everybody either, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, I love exactly. It. And they get families involved. Um, in my district where I am, we have a little parent group called Oak Park Inclusion Network, and there are teachers that have come to these events, and they're interested in getting things going. You know, So they're kind of working with parents to say what else can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, some folks um, you know, actually try to educate their principals. And, you know, one of the things I say about their research is I used to argue this, you know, inclusion issue up and down morally, ethically, and I just don't anymore. I just say, look at the research. It's, it's you know, clear as day. And so I think, for, you know, there's some principals that like data. They respond to it. So looking at, you know, the study I talk about all the time is George and Julie Theo Harris's Schools of Promise data out of Syracuse University, showing an administrator some of the numbers and just saying, if this is true, what does that mean for us? Some administrators love that. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, some folks, you know, pursue these agendas through getting politically active. So I know some teachers who have actually formed, you know, study teams or book clubs or, you know, uh, you know, summer use, uh, you know, summertime to sort of organize around think tanks of sorts and mm-hmm. said, you know, what would be a step, what would be a step in that direction for us? Mm-hmm. So I think none of them are easy in a really tough situation. Um, quite frankly, I know teachers who have moved. <laughs> They're like, I can't get it done here, so I have to do it from the outside. Right. Um, and, you know, I've gone to places where they felt like they felt they could be effective. But there's nothing more exciting to me than having an inclusion-minded teacher in a self-contained classroom. That's exactly who I want there. Um, because that's who's going to fight to make these changes, and that's who's going to be creative and inventive when they see an opening. Um, so I would tell teachers, do not give up over, under, around, or through, find a way or make a way. And if you run into a dead end this way, try a different method. Use parents as your models. They are clever. <laughs> yes, they are. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yes, I know. There's plenty of parents out there that know exactly how to get what they what they want for their, for their kids. Um, and it may take a while, but a lot of them get there. Yeah, exactly. Um, along that lines of kind of that over and under and through and just making a way, uh, I'm curious to to know what your opinion is on, um, the concept of reverse inclusion. Um, and I, I think that there, there was a study, 
um, I'm going to show you how unprepared I am. But there's a <laughs> there's a there was a study out uh, I think in exceptional children, probably six, seven, eight years ago, and it talked about reverse inclusion in the in the way that um, the social benefits of uh, reverse inclusion. Uh, but I am I really am more interested uh, in the academic benefits, um, right. and if if you feel or if you feel that it is a stepping stone to um, creating a more inclusive school. Well, it's a really great question, and it's actually one of the items that I did address in the book because it came up so often. So I kind of have a two-part solution to it. I don't actually think – I agree with you. That's the first thing I'll say. I do agree with you that um, – that there are great social benefits to bringing kids with and without disabilities together. And this is, the, this is sort of the conversation I have with a lot of teams, especially teachers who feel very much alone. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, you know, there are really great social benefits, and I do see the kids doing better. And what I will, you know, try to point out ever so gently for folks that I already know are stressed out and feel like they're doing the one thing that they can do mm-hmm. is what you're actually seeing are the benefits of, you know, I don't doubt that those benefits are there. Those are the benefits that we would see in an inclusive classroom if we could get out there. Exactly. <laughs> because, of course, we see that kids, you know, I just was having this conversation with a teacher last year, and she kept saying, you should see the kids together, though, Paula. I know you don't like this, but you should see them together. I said, I do see them together in inclusive classrooms, and that's where I want it to be. <laughs> um, but, but what I do, you know, so it, the two part is I think teachers – you know, you are, they're doing everything that they can from their end. Mm -hmm. So practically, I think they have to do what they have to do. From a person who would come in and consult with your school, or what would be my opinion in general, Tim, which is a different question, Mm -hmm. I would say, no, it's not a stepping stone, because quite frankly, it rarely ever gets you to the other end of that stone path. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's actually, what I have seen is the opposite it becomes a stopgap. It becomes, an, you know, uh, for a lot of ad- administrators or school systems, it, you know, it kind of becomes a reason that you don't have to take the next step because we're already doing something. Right. When you look at the feds, when you look at the law where we have to bring kids with and without disabilities together, oh, God, we can do that over here. So the kids are accessing, you know, that time and space with each other, but we never have to sort of you know, change what we're doing. And that's my biggest problem from it, not from what a teacher is trying to do, but from a district or administration point of view, is it fails to, it fails to have the system interrogate itself. And so this, the larger structures never change. I have, in fact, I've never seen, or I should say very seldom have seen, I've got to leave it open for someone to tell me later that they heard this and it happened in their school. Right, right. I, I can't remember seeing... Any times, as many times that 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 this was actually a, a you know a quick and logical stepping stone to actually getting kids included. Oftentimes, it's it's the it's the reason why we never get there because we've got this sort of convenient um, you know situation now sort of uh, that we that we're sustaining where kids are getting somewhat you know these these access and they're getting but what what they're usually not getting is access to that greater general education the richness of the larger context of general education. They're not getting access to a very broad range of peers, peers and, the, and they're not getting access to general education teachers, and we know that that's a very powerful part of this mix as well as this collaboration piece. 
So it's not that I don't respect and admire what the hardworking teachers are trying to do because they're stuck. Mm-hmm. That I get. I get mm-hmm. being stuck and doing everything that you can. That's subversive in a, in a way. But what I, why I don't endorse and why I don't like it is because for a lot of it, it, districts or buildings, it lets them off the hook to ever create those, those broader changes and really look at systemically, you know, how would we have to change, you know, how would we adapt and modify for all kinds of learners? How could the school sort of, you know, look different for the broad range of learners that not only are here now, but will enter our doors? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Right. Uh, for years to come. And so I think we get, it, it, it sticks us in that holding pattern. So, yes. Yeah. But, yes. but, I, but I have to say, but for, I, you know, I get the teacher piece and that's a different, you know, that's a different story altogether as folks that are just trying to not be fired and do everything that they can. And that makes sense to me that people are trying to make, create these stepping stones and eventually, you know, push that door open and hope that nobody notices that you're moving <laughs> in the other direction. Right. And I know right. people who have done it. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's not it's not um, um, ideal, you know. Um, I know I know for myself in just my own practice. Um, I mean, since I started teaching, which is close to ten years ago now, um, I had been doing some sort of uh, version of reverse inclusion um, along in in. Um, uh, in conjunction with uh, having students go out into general ed because of their um, uh, because of the amount of support that um, that I had in the classroom, right. and then I, I took a little I took a little bit of a different approach, especially this year, um, because I do have um, one third grader who is um, fully included in a, a third grade classroom with a paraprofessional. But of course he is my, um, still under my caseload, which means my paraprofessional, that's, I mean, um, all things being equal, they, they, you know, count that person as being in my room right? <laughs> because of allotments. And right. I'm sure I know that you know, um, about that. So, sure. um, so what I have been doing is taking um, uh, the the days where third, fourth, and fifth grade uh, have um, we have a target or a gifted education. So uh, a portion of that uh, classroom is gone 
because they're in another pullout situation. So that classroom would join my classroom for academic activities. Um, so, which was really nice because this is the first time I was able to really collaborate with the general ed teacher and we would do some sort of co-teaching lesson, uh, which is different than I had been doing before. Usually when I w had been talking or thinking about reverse inclusion, it was, okay, three or four kids from so-and-so's fourth grade class right. are going to be coming in and we're going to be doing some sort of activity. Um, so it's a little bit different. Um, it's definitely not, you know, what I would uh, love for it to happen. Um, but I think at, at the core, you know, at the core of this whole thing um, are the assumptions of our administrators and um, uh, central office, you know, the superintendent, the special education directors, superintendents, uh, the school board members, uh, that special education is a separate thing than general education. Uh, that special education teachers do something different than uh, than general educators. And inherently, those children are different. So that is why we educate them in this particular way or in this with this particular curriculum, and then we do it the other way for the other kids. Um, when, you know, and I don't agree with that. I I and I, I would assume that you wouldn't agree with that either, because we want to look at how we can um, increase learning for all learners. Um, so, I guess my my setup is um, if if our kids aren't different, um, they all learn. How how do we create systems so that uh, everyone can learn together? Is it is it universal design? Is it something else? Uh, um, is well, first, it? Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say first. I just want to go back to your um, to your piece about the um, about what you're doing with your colleague. You know that to me is um, very interesting example about the co-teaching example because um, it sounds more to me like you're you're engaging in one of those early behaviors I talked about, which is targeting a specific colleague and trying to get something going with co-teaching. I mean, mm. that's, you know, that's a little bit different than what most people think about as uh, reverse inclusion, mm -hmm. isn't it? I mean, in other words, you're involving somebody else and you're saying, you know, we've got these common times. I wonder if this would work. You know, so that is actually, I think, in, in many ways, a very good example of somebody who's feeling powerless but has found a sort of sneaky way to start collaborating, co-teaching, and, you know, engaging in joint lessons with appropriate levels of, you know, pretty challenging, appropriately challenging standards-based content. So that actually, I think, is a really positive example. So I just wanted to clarify that because if people are listening and thinking, hmm, you know, what would be, uh, you know, another way, I've been doing this reverse inclusion, I think the sneaky little thing that you've done there, Tim, is quite quite interesting. <laughs> um, well, thanks. Yeah. I yeah, um, and I love sneaky for sure. Um, but yes, so in, and then the, the second piece that you kind of introduce this question is, you know, you bring up such an important point that it, you know, the research has been remarkably consistent for 20 years, that the reason that we're asking these questions, which are just, I, I, I hate that we're even asking and answering these questions about what's this poor teacher all by him or herself supposed to do well, we know that the research says that we need leadership. I mean, can 
can you make it happen? I have no doubt if anybody can, you can. But why should you have to? I mean, it's, uh, you know, on top of everything else you're doing as a teacher, uh, how exhausting um, and how hard on both you and, and the students. So, you know, we really do need those leaders. And it, we, we, we have seen examples where teachers have been the ones that have been the shepherds of this, but it is so much harder. And when we see schools that are robust and healthy and do the good work of inclusion and get those reputations, those are, that's, those are, that's leadership. I mean, that's when we have building leadership and, and most of the time district leadership. So you're absolutely right there. That's one of the ways that we create these schools is we really educate our leaders and we take them to task. And that's why I go back to one of my <laughs> most common, uh, I guess, uh, bells, uh, bells that I ring in these kinds of talks, which is, you know, who hires your superintendent? Your school board. Mm-hmm. And parents can run for school board. So that's one of the things I say again and again and again. Parents, if that is for you, really think about running for school board. Um, so that's so there's that piece. As far as what it looks like in schools, yeah, I think universal design um, is going to be a is a big part of that. Will be a big part of that. I think the um, need the use of technology. Mm. You know, people call the iPad. Um, I've heard people call the iPad the quiet revolution so that so many kids in the spectrum that we work with are now showing up in a different way. Mm-hmm. They look different. They communicate differently. So I think the ways that technology will advance in the next 10 and 20 years will shock us, and we're going to start to see that kids are not who we thought they were, mm-hmm. that they are far more competent than we ever could have imagined, it, and not just kids with disabilities, um, that kids will be able to show up different. So I think that's going to have a big impact. And I just think looking at personalized ways of being in general so people have often said, you know, wouldn't it be great if there was an IEP for every student? Some schools have sort of adopted that in different ways. I think you will see more of that. And I think technology is actually already leading the way on that. You know, so you, if you've got Kindles, and a lot of these schools, it's amazing. You know, a lot of them are going to the one-on-one tech. It used to be, and Tim, I know you were probably in there with me too, making the adapted books up all night with the, you know, all the materials and cutting and pasting and all, the, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, and then it was just, the book was destroyed in a day. Mm-hmm. You know, now, like you walk in a classroom and all the kids, you know, have Kindles or books or they're on the computer. Everybody's reading in a different way. So now we are, we're kind of getting to that IEP for everyone. In other words, you can be at any place in this computer you know, doing these math apps, and kids can be working on the particular pieces that are most helpful. A lot of people are using flipped classrooms in mathematics so that kids actually watch the lesson at home and engage in, you know, more individualized instruction in the classroom. That has huge potential for personalizing. Um, and so now, I was, we, I was just doing a talk on this last week, you can even have kids watching two different kinds of videos in your classroom so when they come into work and do their mathematics or whatever they're doing, they can actually be you know, working on, you know, individual goals. So it's not to say that kids are not going to come together on anything that's, you know, um, that's uh, common. I mean, that's why we have <laughs> common core. Right. Uh, but, but what we are going to be able to do is have some sort of shared vision for kids, but the ways in which they get to learn and the ways in which they can show us what they know are going to be, ever more varied in the kind of culture, in the kinds of schools that, that they're, they're going to be, you know, these sort of, you know, hopefully, you know, tech-rich schools and mm-hmm. uh, those that are universally designed and everything else, it's going to give us some of those opportunities. So the good news is, I mean, this is, you know, some of the stuff when we talk about this, you know, I think for both of us it can be a little depressing. Mm-hmm. But I think the good news is, and it's great news actually, 
we are only finding out decade after decade that inclusion, we're getting better and better news as the research goes on. We're only finding out that, you know, this is better for kids than we ever thought it was, not only socially but academically and Mm -hmm. in every other way. And the other piece of good news is the way that schools are evolving and changing actually will profit our kids even more. This is all good news. You know, yeah. if we can if we can sort of tap into that and, and sort of make those arguments and bring those discussions, again, to those stakeholders that you mentioned before, whether it's school boards, parents, teachers, administrators, district-level folks, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, the, all that stuff is very encouraging, um, and I do have to keep that in the front of my mind um, because I, I do think eventually, and I don't know how long that's going to be, but I think eventually we're going to move toward – um, inclusion or an inclusive model, um, I think, but we're going to be fighting tooth and nail for those, uh, with, with some people, with some administrators, with some teachers who still have, um, the concept of the traditional, you know, one teacher, 30 kids, 30 desks model, which is, which is, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, you know, I think, um, oh, I can't remember the name, but it's, it's the industrial kind of, right. you know, um, that's, that's how things were, you know, in the, in the twenties and thirties. And we, we're, we're way, I mean, we're so beyond that, but, um, I think our public school system is still very much stuck in, in that rut. Yeah. Uh, well, the but, good news is I think that the te- the kids that are coming out, not only the, um, not only the students that are coming out as teachers, you know, they always had a, these kids have always had cell phones. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the teachers coming up now, right? Um, you know, they've, you know, they've they've had them since they've been kids. They have always had the internet. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? But they've had, you know, they've had YouTube. They've had, you know, it's really interesting. And mm-hmm. not only that, but a lot of the parents that we're going to be serving, and quite frankly. Um, it won't be too long before the new faculty members that we have, you know, have come up in a different mm-hmm. way of being educated. So I think one sort of, you know, like maybe this is too optimistic, but I'm thinking, you know, the, hopefully the ways in which teacher education will change as the teacher educators change and as teachers uh, bring in new sets of skills and expectations, um, you know, those folks that see, you know, this one, you know, one teacher, 30 kids facing forward, you know, I'm hoping that we won't, those models will become more obsolete and people won't be attracted to folks that feel that way. We'll see the new ways of being in the field, whether it's through field placement or through new ways of instructing in the university, and we'll say, maybe this isn't for me. Right. Um, you know, it is new and different. If you, and, and the way, the, the pace at which this is changing, if you don't really, it used to be like if you loved English, you could be a good English teacher, like you would get a great job, or if you liked kids. Now, if you don't like the act of teaching, and quite frankly, if you don't like learning, it will be hard to be a teacher yes. because things will change far too rapidly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for you to keep up. And so if those things don't excite you, um, hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> um, folk, you know, those, those individuals will, will go in, in, in a different direction because that's where the, and, and I think also with collaboration, I think the field is definitely heading toward, um, you know, those spaces as well, just because of what I've just said. I mean, how quickly things are changing. We will need each other 
Um, certainly, you know, the idea of having one tech person in your district that does all of that work, <laughs> that's going to change. Right. We're all going to have to have expertise around what that looks like. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, that, and some of that already is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we are going to move towards more. I'll just say one more thing about that. I, I, I get this um, Harvard magazine, you know, this School of Ed magazine, and one of the um, articles of a couple of – actually, this, was in the, this wasn't even in the School of Ed. This was just in the regular uh, alumni magazine. It was about – it was about the swans. That, uh, the article was about the swan song of the lecture. Um, that wasn't quite the title, but it was about how Harvard professors are saying, you know what, the information is changing so quickly that if we're just going to re- read the book and reiterate, they'll be way ahead of us. So there's too much information available. We can't, we'll be dino- we're dinosaurs if we do that. Hmm. So what they're doing at Harvard is they're doing tons more experiential and project-based work. You know, so if, if one of the, old, the oldest institutions in the country has figured out that I can't talk at them anymore because they can't learn um, as easily, and also people won't come to Harvard because <laughs> they can just as easily get the information elsewhere, then I, that makes me hopeful that other institutions will change too. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's very interesting because uh, I work with um, um, a, a mixed variety of ages, uh, and something that I hear, not just in my school, but you know, in in general, um, is this really philosophical difference that the changes that are happening to children, to families, because of technology, is a negative thing. Um, right. Whereas you know, people in my generation and younger um, don't necessarily go towards that uh, because. Right. You know, because I, I mean, I do see the benefits of of uh, differentiating with technology, um, and things don't always have to be so, you know, uh, lecture based. And so it's just a, it's a, a very much a I think a cultural thing too. Um, I don't know about in other countries. I know that in in the United States, um, this it's a changing of the guard. It's a it's a it's a new way of doing what we've been doing. Uh, and I, I agree. I, I hope, um, the younger teachers will be attracted to that, um, you know, for education. Um, one, one more question. Uh, this has been a, a great conversation. Um, but one more question, um, as we kind of, uh, wrap things up is that, uh, in, in your opinion, um, can the special schools, private, you know, private schools for, you know, kids with ADHD or, you know, quote unquote, high functioning autism or homeschool kids or um, like, are, are those systems, programs, whatever you want to call it, uh, even even religious education, can those be a truly inclusive system or are they missing out because they're not being served in a public school? Right. Well, I, 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 I personally see homeschooling um, apart from the other examples that uh-huh. you gave. Okay. And, 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 and I think other people have different views on that. But the reason I, I see that differently is that families have chosen, and sometimes they've chosen that because they couldn't get inclusion or they couldn't get the services that exactly. they needed. But a lot of times that was just a choice that I want to be my child's teacher and what a lot of families, there's a lot of homeschooling in my community mm-hmm. um, because it's a very sort of arts-based and progressive, um, you know, um, and just kind of a, just a very interesting um, 
very family-centered um, community. I, I think a lot of people find inclusion through through music classes and through, you know, extracurricular activities and parents come together, you know, to do some of that work. So I think that one is a little bit different in that, um, it's, you know, I, I, families have chosen to be their, their child's teacher and, and, and they find inclusion within the family. I mean, that's one of the things that I love that Doug Bicklin says is that the, the one institution that is the most inclusive in the world is the family. Mm, absolutely. And that's true. Um, as far as some of the other examples, you know, I think it's not that I at all um, don't appreciate what a lot of schools are trying to do to give kids specialized instruction and support. Um, again, I, I just go back to, you know, my argument about the, the reverse inclusion is that what really worries me about some of these models is that we never challenge our public schools the schools that we all pay for, you know, for everybody to access. Mm-hmm. If we don't bring in, even, for example, one of the most controversial examples are kids who are deaf and hard of hearing. Mm-hmm. And I really get that. I mean, I get that I would not want my child to go to school without other kids who he or she could talk to very fluently. Um, so one of the answers, one of the discussions we have to have about that is, how could that happen? in public schools. And so what happens, I know see, uh, one of the, uh, there's a couple of urban school districts, including Chicago, that had it, um, had a school like this, um, where it was a dual bilingual program. And so everybody learned sign from the youngest ages on. Hmm. So that several kids, that was a, it was a cluster site um, for kids who were deaf and hard of hearing, but everybody was learning sign, just like in some schools, everybody learned Spanish. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I don't get that kids, you know, people will say, but it's a culture issue and deaf kids need to be together. I understand that. I just think we could bring that into public schools. If you asked me, would you want your child, your children who don't have identified needs, to be fluent in sign language by the time they left elementary school? I mean, (laughs) who wouldn't want that? Right. (laughs) What an asset. Um, So that's the kind of dream I think that we can have. That's the the promise of a a truly inclusive school, school or school district. And so the same can be said whether it's disabilities, whether it's autism. It's like, you know, if you're going to a special setting so that you can have, be in a really sensory safe space, why couldn't we bring that into our public schools? If that's something that's really needed for lots of kids and they're going to have to sort of learn how to cope with that and, and ask for those things and advocate later in life, you know, I think I would like my kid to be in a school without fluorescent lighting glaring on them. And if you think that's really effective, let's talk about making safe schools more sensory safe for everybody because I believe you that that's a good thing. So what could happen over here? How could we challenge our school districts to sort of be, as, if not all things to all people, as close as we can possibly get? And, and that's sort of, for me, where I at least, you know, I know it's, you know, very uh, optimistic, but we've seen enough, we've seen so many great stories and we've seen this happen time and time again where people sort of do live the dream that I feel like if I'm going to do work in this area, you know, I want to just keep pushing, you know, pushing myself forward and pushing other folks forward to say, to ask that question of what is possible. I I feel like um, there are certain schools in the country, particularly private schools, like, uh, for instance, the Ideal School in Manhattan and then there's the uh, Hope Technology School out in the Bay Area mm-hmm. in California. Yeah. And then uh, there's one more that I'm forgetting, but there's a, a documentary that um, 
was featured in Education Week, and I, I, I don't have it off the top of my head. But there are schools that are trying this model about educating children together. Um, are there other are there public school districts in the United States that are being successful at this model? And if they if they if they are, where are they? <laughs> and, yeah. You know, and 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 uh, is it just one school or a couple schools, or is it much broader than I think of what's happening? Well, I you know I. I can answer that to some extent, but the reason it makes me a little uncomfortable is because, you know, I feel like families, you know, do listen and listen, tune in. I know you think that that it's only your mom, but, (laughs) you know, I I would hate to say, here's what I'll say. Okay. That, 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 that leadership, whenever leadership changes, school change, schools Mm -hmm. change. Mm -hmm. And so the minute you say you're right, this is the best school district ever. And then right. the superintendent leads, you know, so it's tricky. Yeah. I did a study uh, several years ago called, I think it's called going away to school. And it was about parents who move mm-hmm. um, to get inclusion. And one of the things that they found was that, uh, that one of our findings was that oftentimes parents did say, I would do it again. You know, it cost me a lot of money. It was horrible personally, but I would do it again. But in some cases, it was only good for two years because then we got to the middle school and that was horrible. Right. Or he, he graduated high school and the community had no services. So I think talking about, like, where can you go to get it is a little bit tricky. Mm-hmm. But I will say this. We know that it's drastically different from state to state, right? So we know that places like Vermont and New Hampshire get really good marks. You know, they're doing a great job and they always come up on top when you look at, you know, those federal statistics. And then there's other places like Illinois, where I live, which is uh, always on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a huge, huge discrepancies. Um, Madison, Wisconsin, where I went to school, um, they, you know, have recently won national awards around inclusion. That's been fairly consistent, um, you know, as far as their reputation. Having said that, when I point out certain school districts and talks, and I still do that, I always have someone come up to me and say, you know that school district you talked about in California that's so progressive? Yeah. Well, my nephew went there, and he was completely excluded. You know, because right. <laughs> every school can be different within a, you know, within a, within exactly. the, the district itself. Exactly. So, so there is, like you named a couple of, um, I was just at, at a, we had an inclusion conference here, and Bill Henderson spoke. So he was the principal of the O'Hearn School, which is now the Bill Henderson School in Boston for, for you know, many years, and they did a lot of really interesting things out there at the O'Hearn School in Boston Public. Um, but again, it's probably not, you know, Bill's the first to say it wasn't perfect, but it was certainly innovative in ways that are worth studying. And he actually has a new book out um, called The Blind Advantage that I would definitely recommend. You know, there's the Geronio Preschool in Syracuse, New York, fantastic reputation for including, for bringing families and kids with and without disabilities together, and really thinking about just community issues, too, and family issues and some of those big I issues we talked about earlier. So, you know, if families are really seeking, you know, where are these places, um, you know, their, their parent training centers are some of the best places to find out. Ask other parents. Mm-hmm. Because one of the other elements in the book, so this is kind of a perfect full circle, is I think it's one of the first things in the book I say, if you want to know if you're inclusive, ask people. Like, don't answer me. You know, if I, are you inclusive? Don't tell me what you think. Sample five people in the hallway, a parent, a kid, a teacher, a therapist, you know, 
and the nurse and tell me what they said. Mm. And I think when you ask, you know, different kinds of stakeholders like parents, where are they really including kids? They're having these conversations. They're on the web. They're, you know, in the chat rooms. They, they'll, they can tell you they're on Facebook and they know those, some of those stories. So I would say two things. One, there are ways to find out currently who's doing the good work. And then number two, to realize that, you know, that, diff, you know, passionate people working together can create places like the Hope Technology School and the, you know, the Bill Henderson School and the Geronio School. In fact, that's, you know, when you look back on it, that's always how these schools got their start was a, you know, the Margaret Mead, the small group of <laughs> committed people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's worth it to look outside and sometimes it's worth to, to, to start something right where you are. Well, I think, I think that's a perfect, um, you know, ending to our conversation. Uh, I can't, you know, thank you enough. This has been fabulous. I hope that everyone gets, uh, something out of this. I, we talked about a lot of stuff, so I'm sure, I'm sure that it, it, it everyone will. So, um, once again, thank you to Paul Kluth for joining us on the Think Inclusive podcast. Um, good luck with everything. I know that you are, you know, uh, very successful. I, I um, can only imagine, you know, what is uh, in your future, uh, more trainings, more books, and hopefully, uh, you know, changing our world for the better. So uh, well, thank you so, time. so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. That concludes this edition of the Think Inclusive podcast. For more information about Paula Kluth, you can follow her on Twitter at Paula Kluth and on both of her websites paulakluth.com or differentiationdaily.com Remember, you can always find us on Twitter at think underscore inclusive or on the web at thinkinclusive.us Today's show was produced by myself talking into USB headphones using a newly refurbished MacBook Pro GarageBand and a Skype account. Bumper music by Jose Galvez with the song Press. You can find it on iTunes. You can also subscribe to the Think Inclusive podcast via the iTunes Music Store or Podomatic.com, the largest community of independent podcasters on the planet. From Marietta, Georgia, please join us again on the Think Inclusive podcast. Thank you for your time and attention. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.